Thank you for joining us for the Local Church Podcast. At Local Church, we value each person's unique experience with faith and hope this message impacts you today. Well, how's it going, church? Man, we have got ourselves a summer series for you. In nine weeks, we are trying to cover the whole Bible. Not possible. So what we've decided to do is give you a little intro, outro, and then in the middle, take seven or eight weeks to break up the Bible in the largest chunks. So today, despite the fact that I'm preaching to you from Matthew 4, I'm actually talking to you about the message, the the title of the sermon is called The Five Scrolls. And I want to talk to you about the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, the Torah, or the books of the law. Okay? And And the pronunciation can be given two ways, Pentateuch or more appropriately, Pentateuch, Pentateuch, which is Greek for five scrolls. Say it with me, Pentateuch. Now you. Nice. The Bible says though, Matthew chapter 4, 4 through 11, talking about Jesus being tempted by the devil. Okay, not not something that we would be uh, keen for. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I love that, verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, I mean, he was hungry. Amen. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, that they will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Again, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of mankind, uh, all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. Enough. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels attended him. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the preaching of the word. We pray that you be with us. Bless us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we lead up up into camp, we want to take time this year to study the Bible. We think this is a good thing. We want to take time to look at the individual sections of the Bible. And today, it's my job to talk with us today about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five scrolls, the books of the law. A few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 2. Do you remember that? It was the the week after Easter. And in Acts chapter 2, we looked at three things that the early church focused on as their main priorities. They focused on prayer, they focused on the Bible, and they focused on small groups for fellowship. Prayer, the Bible, fellowship. We're glad to announce today, like we did that day, that as a church, we focus on the Bible. We read it every week, that it takes up 50% of our church services. But have you ever considered today that when it comes to the Bible, that those main characters in the Bible didn't have the Bible? They say about the book of Acts that it's the only book in the Bible that's not yet complete. That the Acts of the Apostles, that's us still building his church, is the only book in the Bible that's not yet complete. That phrase is not accurate but you get the sentiment. 
the book of Acts, if not yet completed, if we're still acting out the church, we have the benefit of the whole Bible. To be clear, the Bible was written across hundreds of years by many authors across three continents. But as the literature was written, the author only had the literature which had already been written before him. In other words, the writers of the Old Testament only had the books of the Old Testament that had already been written. The writers of the New Testament had the Old Testament, and we have the benefit of both. Importantly, our faith is centered around Jesus. He's the centerpiece of our faith. From the first light of Sunday, Christianity exploded. The rabbi of Nazareth spent his life teaching from the Bible that he had access to at that time. And obviously his words in red letter would then create the New Testament through his life and teachings. But in other words, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five scrolls, the books of the law, were the source material for Jesus. That was his source material. I love you know, true comic book fans, especially when it comes to movies that come out. People that, you know, a movie that's been uh, filmed and produced from a book, from source material. And people who are comic book fans or book fans, they'll often say, oh yeah, I like it because it was true to the source material. Or they'll say, ah, I didn't like it. They didn't stay true to the source material. One of the best characters in the MCU is Thor. And he was my favorite comic book character growing up. He was pretty much the only comic that I read of all of the MCU characters. And so when I see him portrayed well, I think that's great because it's true to the source material. Jesus had as his source material, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Jesus' most quoted books in his teachings are Deuteronomy, Exodus, Genesis, and Isaiah, and the Psalms. The Torah is regarded as the most authoritative and holy and highly inspired section of the Old Testament writings. It's because these books contain the laws given to the Israelites by God, who revealed himself personally to be Yahweh. The Pentateuch comes from two Greek words, meaning the five scrolls. But it is better to think of the Pentateuch, the Torah, as one book in five sections. That the book of the law is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are largely the hardest books for you to get through in your Bible reading plan every year when you start reading it. It was written around the 15th century BC, we believe, by Moses, that God was speaking to Moses about how to build a people group, how to build a family, a cohesive unit, that God views the Israelites as one cohesive unit, a family, from creation and through redemption. From the Pentateuch, we get um, the key concepts of our faith, concepts of monotheism, or in other words, that we believe in one creator God, one supreme being, one ultimate transcendent deity, one God that has three persons. We then from that get our concept of the Trinity or the Trinitarian Godhead, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is very clear through the, the, the reading of the writings of the law is that we see God at work through the Old Testament and specifically through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that he's the deliverer of the Israelites, that he created the world, that he had relationship with people, that he's the provider of the Ten Commandments and that he's the re-provider of the Ten Commandments. 
that he's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, he's Jehovah Shema, the God who is there, Jehovah Sitneku, the God, our righteousness, that he is Jehovah Shalom, our God, our peace. That our God was present and active for thousands of years before the physical and tangible arrival of Jesus. That God has been active for a long time, building relationships, that he had friends, that James 2 in the New Testament references his relationship with Abraham in James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. That Exodus 33 verse 11 says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. He spoke, he built relationships, he was active he made covenants, he had friends. And we see this clearly through Moses' writings in the books of the law that we're studying today. That the most quoted books that Jesus used were from the Torah, the Hebrew Bible of the time. Today, let's center our teachings, though, around Matthew 4. And the reason that I want to center our teachings around Matthew 4 is because it's Jesus' first action in his ministry that the Bible says that he's led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Like I would be just concerned that I was hearing God right, if that, was, if that was what God was saying. But his first action, in his first moment of ministry, in his most, maybe we might consider his most vulnerable moment, was to quote the book of Deuteronomy. That his answer, when face to face with the devil, that the greatest supreme being embodied on earth against Lucifer, Satan, the devil, who was cast down from heaven, the enemy of our souls, was to quote Deuteronomy. I wonder how many of us here today, if faced with a significant trial in our life, would quote Deuteronomy. I wonder, I wonder if any of us here today even know where to find it, even know anything that the book of Deuteronomy might provide us. And so as one of the, well, obviously that guy there, who beeped his horn just then, felt indifferent about what I was saying about the book of Deuteronomy. So let's talk about it. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy means second law. That the first law referring to the law that the Israelites received when they left Egypt and received their deliverance. That it is written to the second generation. That it is written to the children of the generation who received the first law. Or in other words, the children of the generation that died in the desert before them. The generation who entered the promised land, that the Pentateuch is bookended by the book of Deuteronomy, that Genesis is the start and Deuteronomy is the end, that he quotes Deuteronomy often. And he does so here three times successively in the book of Matthew 4, in the book of Matthew chapter 4. He quotes it directly here when he says these phrases. Jesus answered by saying, and I quote, it is is written, and this is a direct reference, Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4 verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16, when he says, also it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then lastly, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 again in verse 13 this time, when he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus here is dealing with what we call now the three temptations, and they can be found in the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We'll do another message on this another time. But these are from 1 John 2.16, where it says this, For everything in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. That we read in Hebrews 4.15 about Jesus being our great high priest, don't we? We read about him being, and I quote, tempted in every way. That the reference here is that he was tempted in these three broader categories as represented here in Matthew chapter 4. And his response to those three temptations direct from the devil were these scriptures out of Deuteronomy. Let me, let me shorten them and then I'll paraphrase them for our points today. We live on every word that comes from God. Do not put the Lord to the test and worship God and serve him only. And let me leave our fathers to make our points today because what Jesus is saying from Deuteronomy, from the Pentateuch, from the Pentateuch, from the five scrolls, from this key, this, this key section of the books of the law in the Old Testament, highly authoritative, he says these, these three things. Relationship with God gives life. Trust in God's faithfulness and make God your priority. Let's break down each thing he said, placing specific emphasis on the book of Deuteronomy. The first thing I'll say is this, is that Jesus says relationship with God gives life. Relationship with God gives life. In Matthew 4, he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting here in a section in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is entitled, do not forget the Lord. It goes on to say this in verse 8. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter the promised land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. This is, this, this is God saying, follow these commands so that you may enter the promises that I made to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell through these 40 years. We have here a, 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 an awesome dialogue. We have a, a great moment where God is speaking clearly through Moses. And the reference here is to manna. The reference here is to bread, heavenly bread. Manna was God's contribution, his miraculous giving of food to sustain his people. That it was present because of God's miraculous touch and presence in the life of Israel. Feeding you with manna, the Bible says, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone. This allegory, this picture, this metaphor will be used time and time again in the scriptures, right up until the fact where Jesus has what we call the Last Supper, where he gives of his life and is handed over to be beaten, arrested, crucified, where he then is resurrected and ascends. But the last thing he does is he breaks bread. That's a phrase that's even transcendent of our Christian faith. People in the community who are unchurched use that phrase. Come let us break bread. That Jesus says, my body is the bread. And we have Jesus talking about bread here referencing manna from the Old Testament that's a miraculous bread. 
And he's saying that man can't live on bread alone, but on every word. In other words, Jesus is saying that relationship with God is ultimately what gives you life, what gives us life. In other words, he's saying this. If you run out of bread, you'll be okay because God will save you. But if you run away from God, even bread won't save you. He's saying, if you run out of bread, you'll be okay because God will save you. That you might have nothing in your life of value that's tangible, that can feed you, or even food to survive on. But it's okay because you have God. But if you have those things in your life and run away from God, those things will not save you. How many times do we need a celebrity or a, a millionaire or a billionaire? Or, or it feels like we're fast approaching a couple of trillionaires to stand up and say, man, I got to the point where I had everything that I thought I needed and then I lived in excess and then I realized when I lost what truly mattered, what was the most important thing in my life, I realized that those things at the end of the day don't matter. Jesus is saying that you could have bread and that's great, but man doesn't live on bread. Doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from a relationship with God. The writer of Philippians in 1 verse 21 says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? God was trying to teach here. Remember that the book of Deuteronomy is the second law. That he gave the first law to the first generation and they were delivered out of slavery, but then they passed away in the desert. And another generation arose that God had to teach, re-instruct. And God was teaching the next generation after Exodus that he was with them, that he provided for them, that he gave them everything that they needed, that he gave them the law and also brought them through their challenges miraculously. And then it feels to me like Jesus then doubles down or even triples down on his preaching. Note this of the second law again. That today our key scripture is, is not Deuteronomy. Our key scripture is Matthew 4. And we, we find that you know, in the book of Exodus, the law was taught, but then retaught again in Deuteronomy. And then Jesus in Matthew 4, hundreds of years later, is then, remember the 500-year gap even between Malachi and the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, as his first act in ministry, is then teaching back Deuteronomy, which is the second law, which feels like he's tripling down on the law that God gave his people to build a people. As his first act in ministry, he's referencing back to the second book of the law that Moses wrote. And I think that's powerful. Jesus is wanting to endorse the truth that relationship with the Father is the only thing in life. It's the only way to live life. It's the only way to get life and then live it to the fullest extent. And that relationship with him is indeed life. And Jesus would go on to preach that the only way to the Father is through him. There's a show on TV that I think we don't deserve. I don't think we're good enough for this show. There's a few dud episodes, but for the most part, it's just delivering eight, nine, ten out of ten episodes. My friends, that is Ted Lasso. We don't deserve it. And there's, a, there's a character in Ted Lasso, his name is Danny Rojas. He always takes the free kicks. One time he kicked the dog accidentally. But he's got this phrase where he says, he says football is life. Football is life. That's his whole ethos, being on the team. Football is everything. It's life. He lives and breathes football. He, he plays it professionally for the team. He just, football is life. 
And Jesus is trying to teach us here when he references the book of Deuteronomy, when he says to the disciples that, that those listening, that, that we don't live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's trying to say that relationship with God gives life. Relationship with God is life. A second reference here we have in, in Matthew 4, verse 7, Jesus answered the devil and he said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Interesting. And that's a direct reference, again, to Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which is our, which is our key text today. And Jesus is quoting a section in Deuteronomy that's described as this, love the Lord your God. So firstly, he's saying, prioritize God. He gives life. Relationship with God is the only way to life. And relationship with Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Okay, interesting. Then he goes on to say, don't put the Lord your God to the test under the section which we then put in later that says, love the Lord your God. And my point today, my second point is this, trusting God's faithfulness. Relationship with God gives life, but Jesus is trying to remind us here, trust in his faithfulness. Don't put him to the test. The language here is referencing something from Exodus 17. He said, follow me now. Matthew 4, Jesus is preaching and referencing Deuteronomy. And, and here's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, it's referencing Exodus 17. You see, Jesus is just trying to help us see that this whole thing is interconnected and that we shouldn't devalue or throw away these five books of the law, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, because it's his source material. He's using it to preach to the people who were listening on that day and to us today. That the language here is Exodus 17. And they had run out of water in the wilderness. And Israel had seen God do great things in the past. He saved them miraculously, brought them through the Red Sea. He had parted the oceans. He sent them manna to eat. But he'd also promised great things in the future. He promised them like all the blessings of Abraham. Oh, that's amazing. He promised to take them to the land of peace and abundance. That the problem for Israel, though, was not the past. The problem was not God's promises in the future. Like us standing here and listening to this today, the Israelites' problem was the present. They were in the middle of the wilderness with no water. Now, you and I both know what it's like to go on a vacation, Canada Day weekend, and get to the point where, like, this is dangerous. And I do this. This is dangerous. You try and see how far the car can get close to empty on the fuel tank because you, you think you know. You think you know. You think you know. But we've all had that experience where it runs out before we get to the gas station and we're on the side of the street, 35 degree heat. And, it, you know, I've got, got four children in the back complaining and Nadia is like super patient, but even that can really like be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And, and we think we know, but we don't know. To be in the wilderness with no water, you think you know what that's like, but you don't know. Like this would be the worst thing. You would forget about God's promises. You would forget about the miracles and you would just be concerned, Moses, right now with the present and getting through. Jesus is referencing Exodus 17 by quoting Deuteronomy 6 in Matthew 4, and he's saying, trust in God's faithfulness. The language there, don't put the Lord your God to the test, is not testing God's trustworthiness to come through for us. This is a picture of us. We can pinpoint things that God has done in the past. We believe that he will do great things in the future. These things are always up for debate. There's always doubt that circles around, and I, and I understand that. But we are stuck in the present, trying to find the miracle in the middle. Exodus 17 describes this phrase. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he among us? 
The lack of water caused them to question whether God was really on their side. All that he had done in the past didn't count. And all that he had promised to do in the future did not count. What counted was the present, and the present was frightening. I'm preaching to somebody today. It doesn't count what he's done in the past. It doesn't count what he's promised in the future. What matters is what's happening right now. To them, they couldn't tell that God was really there. They couldn't fathom that. They couldn't believe that. It wasn't yet a part of their psyche. He couldn't really be powerful enough and trustworthy enough to bring them through, even though he'd already done it. If he would bring them out of this barren wilderness was the biggest question of the day. And Jesus is saying when we're in that space, don't put him to the test. In other words, trust in his faithfulness. We make fun of them, but it makes sense because I believe that this is exactly what we would do. The lesson here is that Jesus is trying to teach us that God is faithful, that he's brought us out of these things, that some things might harm us, but he's given us a great future and has brought us out even right now despite the circumstances that we face. Even if we cannot see him at work, he is at work. Even if we feel alone, we are not alone. And lastly, Jesus says this in Matthew 4, in, in uh, verse 10, he says, away from me, Satan. I feel like he's just kind of like swatting him like a fly. 40 days is up, I've had enough. Away, just like a stray cat. Get out of here. You know, when you're, or when you're running on the canal and there's a goose, you know, it's huge. I was at my house the other day. There was a turkey in the backyard, full-size turkey, like a velociraptor. And so this turkey was there and I'm like, yeah, shoot, you dirty, you filthy bird. And like, what's the turkey doing? I live in the neighborhood. I don't live like in the country. And the turkey's not flying there. He's cruising around the neighborhood, just walking around. But it's like, yeah, raccoons, flee away from me. Worship the Lord your God and serve. I love how he's preaching at the devil every time too. They're having a conversation. He's like, hey man, let's sit down, listen to this. And he says, away. But before you go, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let me paraphrase that as point number three. I believe Jesus is saying here, make God the priority. Make God the priority. The context for us, Deuteronomy 6, is in verse 10 says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers. He's, he's prophesying, he's speaking in the future. He wants us to just keep our eyes on tomorrow. When he brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referencing the past generational, the things I've done, the promises I've made, which we've got to keep our eyes fixed on both of those. A land with, uh, a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells that you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and you are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. He's like, guys, Deuteronomy 6, I promised these guys that you would end up there. And when you do end up there, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. When we go through tough times and fail to reference that God has brought us through those times historically, and we pray for him to bring us through again, and he does, he is faithful to answer our prayers and fulfill his promises. The moment you pray, heaven hears your prayer. When he brings us through the trials that we face, verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Verse 13, fear the Lord your God. Now, the fear of the Lord, we'll get into this another time, but that's a word that can be misrepresented, misused, and a little mysterious. But in other words, be, be in awe of God. 
Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Don't be misled by other people's beliefs. Stay true. Interesting. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Let me just read one, one phrase again. When the Lord your God brings you into the land or fulfills his promises to you, don't forget the Lord. Fear him, serve him, be in awe of him. Don't be distracted by other people's beliefs. This is what I'm gathering from here. He's jealous. He doesn't want you to share his place with others. My kids are merry churches. They could learn things from other families, but I don't want them to be adopted into those families or become too much like them that they forget the true essence of what it is to be the culture and values of my family. And I'm just a regular earthly father. Our God who was building a generation, a family, a nation that would then, be, that would then become us. He's saying, don't, don't be distracted by the beliefs of others. That the jealousy, he doesn't want to share his space with another. These are weighty commandments by Jesus. Deuteronomy, it doesn't mess around, which is why sometimes we flip through it quickly in our Bible reading plan, which is why we're spending time focusing on it today. The lesson here is that Jesus is reminding us of God's expectations from Deuteronomy, which is a, a reflection of Exodus, which was the first book of the law, and this is the second. And he's now tripling down, bold, underlined, italicized, to remind us that in the books of the law, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, God was teaching Israel something that Jesus wants to reference again in his first act in ministry. And God's expectations are clear. He wants to be number one in our life. Not one B. We get these in the greatest of all time debates, mainly with the like, uh, athletes, basketball players, uh, Michael Jordan and LeBron, different generational debate. And, they, and people go, ah, 1A, 1B. What do you mean 1A, 1B? Hey, you, you sit down with LeBron James and say, hey man, you're 1B. Hey, hey MJ, you're 1 but 1A because there's another guy. They're both like, no, let's play now. Michael Jordan's probably 60. He's like, let's play right now. <laughs> you know, he's probably going to lose, but God's like that. He's jealous of that top spot in your life. I want my kids to have significant others, uh, aunties and uncles and friends and mentors and leaders and pastors and teachers and coaches and friends, significant people in their life that can help shape them. And it takes a village to raise a child. But I don't want to be replaced as their dad. <laughs> Imagine one day, Ryder's 13, he comes home, he's like, hey dad, so this is Steve and um, he's my new dad. So it's been great, thanks for everything, but this is, this is the guy and we're going to be Father and son from now on. This is not something that I would be enthusiastic about. I might be enthusiastic if he said, hey, dad, this is Steve. And Steve really has the same convictions as us. Doctrinally, he believes what we believe, but he just provides a different voice, a different angle, different perspective. At the end of the day, you're my dad, but he's significant in my life and he's really helped me. And what would be even better is if I already knew Steve. In fact, the better case scenario would be like, hey, Ryder, this is Steve. You know Steve, and we have a relationship with him, and he's going to help shape our beliefs, our culture, our values as a family, because we believe the same thing as Steve, even though he sees things a different way. We have unity. We might see differently on the political scale, slightly left of center, slightly right of center, extreme right, extreme left, whatever it might be, but there's unity in the things that matter. So Steve, 
help Ryder become a man is a much better approach as a father than Ryder saying, hey, Dad, you've been usurped by Steve as my dad. This is not something that I would be enthusiastic about. And God, for clarity's sake, to Israel is saying, hey, Israel, it's been great. Like I did all these miraculous things. I brought you through the Red Sea. Here's manna and quail. And a generation that were unbelieving have been replaced by a new generation that will take over the promised land. And when that happens, don't forget. But I think probably lastly, like before I wrap this thing up, and Jesus is the last thing that he said, he's kind of saying, oh yeah, like uh, really, really importantly, um, uh, like God's number one. Not one B, not number two, not number three, numero uno, the top dog our focus, the centerpiece of our life. In other words, this is what I think it means maybe in our vernacular and our, in our stage of life, in this age that we live in. He's the filter by which all other decisions should be made. I think that's what it means to be number one. Because I think that we have become the filter by which all other decisions are made. So I've got something in front of me and I'm filtering that just through my experiences and my emotions. I don't know about you, but I think those are two very dangerous things to filter our decision-making through. That our experiences are so different to one another. And our experiences and our memory sometimes can't be trusted. How many times have you think you said something and you think you did this and you think you left it there, but then it's not there, you didn't say that, and it's unreasonable to you, for you to think that you actually did that thing because your memories are not trustworthy. Experiences and your feelings up and down every day He's saying, let me be the filter by which all decisions are made. Let, let God be the priority. Jesus is, is, is coming in. He's using this moment, his first act in ministry, to reference back to what is the book of the law. We have, I think, used some language that I think is a little bit unclear and a little bit dismissive of all the things that God did in our Protestant evangelical mindset through the preaching of the word where we'll say things like, we're a part of a new covenant. Yeah, yes, 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 yes we are. Which means I don't have to carry around a dove and a goat so that when I come into the house of God, into the sanctuary, I don't need to come to the altar and get atonement for my sin by the shedding of blood. The shed blood of Jesus means I don't need to do that. That's the new covenant. But God is not abolishing, he's fulfilling. He's not abolishing everything he already said. Some of the ceremonial laws, have been changed. But the way where God says to us, I'm number one in your life, keep me number one. Keep, you gotta, like, if we believe that he's the one true God, if we believe that he loves us, then we would be wise to follow this commandment. Like if I believe that he loves me and he's the supreme, creative, transcendent deity and there's only one and it's him, if I believe that and he says, hey man, just FYI, just keep me number one. Keep praying to me. Keep referencing me. Keep building relationship with me. Keep me as the centerpiece and focus of your life. If we, can, if we believe that he is that and that he's saying that, it would be to our benefit. Someone the other day posted something online, as, as our friends tend to do, as we all do. And I messaged him, I said, what's the virtue of that post? Have you, do you ask yourself that question when you post stuff? What's the virtue? In other words, is it virtuous? Let me use a different word. Is it beneficial? Here's another way. What is the benefit? What's the benefit of that post? Is it beneficial? Will it help? 
My question today as I close is, is this. Is it beneficial to put God number one in our lives? What's the virtue? Is it virtuous? It's rhetorical because I believe that he loves us, that he's called us, that he made us. We're his masterpiece and then he adopted us into his family, that he's given us grace and access to the Father and eternity in heaven, that he's filled us with the Holy Spirit and given us 66 books bound in leather as a library for life. That if I believe he's done that for my good, then there is absolute virtue and benefit to follow him. And Jesus in Matthew 4, Malachi, Matthew, four chapters in, he says, devil, be away from me. Wait, before you go. Make sure that God is priority. And if he can be a priority, if we can make sure that this tall order, this difficult task is followed through religiously by us, that he's number one in our life, then I believe it will add tremendous benefit to our life. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you came with a friend, you were invited by somebody, you're sitting in a, in, a, in a lounge room, the laptop's up there on the countertop, you're in a dining room, it's on a TV. Whoever you're with today, maybe you're alone watching it on a device, whatever the scenario that you're in. You've heard me talk about the first five books of the Bible by referencing Matthew 4, Jesus, his first sermon, his first act in ministry. And I wanted to do that to, to help us see that all of the Bible is important and written by God, co-authored God and man and given to us as a handbook for life, as a life-changing uh, piece of literature. But I also wanted to make sure that we know that through all of that, Jesus is the main focus of the scriptures, that his foreshadowing is right through the scriptures, that has these little cameos, theophanies we call them, these little moments where he comes up and has these appearances. But we have here this moment where he's referencing back the first and second law, the first and second books of the law. And it's just so important to us that we understand that the key personality, the key man, God in the scriptures, who is Jesus, embodied, puts skin and, 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 and flesh on and moved into the neighborhood, Eugene Peterson says, that relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. That you might not be able to wrap your head around Deuteronomy, I get it. <laughs> man, join the, join the team. Uh, around Exodus, around everything that's going on, around the journey through the major and minor prophets. I, I understand all of that. But if we can just start by acknowledging Jesus as the forerunner, the author, the, the key, most crucial part of the scriptures and having relationship with him unlocks the whole thing, then we're off to a good start. And I would love to pray with you before we close and believe that in that moment of prayer, we can bring you into relationship with God that we can start a new relationship to get you on the right page. Pray a simple prayer and believe that in that moment, your whole life could be changed, turn around. And we believe that in Jesus' name. And so if that's you, no matter where you are, I'll, I'll pray. And as I say the line of this prayer, when you repeat it back to me, there's gonna be a button that will come up in the chat and you can click that. It said, I made a decision for Christ. It's gonna take you to a, um, a host prayer partner screen is gonna pop up and that you can start a conversation with that person. But most importantly, let's pray this prayer. It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you. I need you in my life. I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you do. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to hand you back now to our service MCs. Love you, church. See you next week. We are so glad you joined us for the Local Church Podcast. To get connected, please follow us on social media 
and check out our website for groups and other ways to get involved.